We would like to call to the stage right now a man known as the Pavarotti of the Peloton. Please put your hands together for. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, welcome to episode 92 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who is the Pavarotti of the Peloton. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, a review to get us underway today. Informative and motivating. Five stars by Jeffrey Watts from the US. Semi-Pro Cycling is without a doubt the best podcast out there for anyone looking to improve their cycling, whether it be from a fitness standpoint or a competitive one. Thank you, Jeffrey. That is exactly what Semi-Pro Cycling is all about, fitness and competitiveness. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love, love, love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me sing. Hot girls, we have problems too. We're just like you, except we're hot. Quite, but thank you very much. Now, a couple of great articles that I came across this week. The first one, Physiological Demands of Road Sprinting in Professional and Under-23 Cycling, a Pilot Study. It takes a look at what it takes to be a pro sprinter at both these levels and the difference between them, which is pretty fascinating. It wouldn't really be of interest to you if you are a category racer and you're not in these two categories. But I think that just knowing what these riders are capable of is pretty amazing. But one interesting thing, I would be interested to see a study done between the different categories at the amateur level. I think that would be quite fascinating. So you would know if you're stepping up a grade how much you have to actually step up your performance in sprinting to win a race at a higher grade. But the study at hand went through and studied nine successful top three sprints performed by a professional and an under 23 rider. A couple of interesting things that came from this study is that there was no statistical differences between the absolute peak and average sprint power of a pro compared to an under 23. The average power output relative to body weight and the projected frontal area was lower in the pro than the under 23. And also another difference was the intensity in the last 10 minutes prior to the sprint was significantly higher in the pro compared to the under 23 level. That's why not many riders other than Peter Sagan are making the gap when it comes to under 23 to pro in the first couple of years. The races themselves were actually similar in duration, total elevation gain, and the average power throughout the entire race. But the study itself concludes that the physiological demands leading into road sprinting 
which is the intensity of the last 10 minutes, were found to be higher in pro compared to the under-23 races. However, a similar sprint output of around 15.5 watts per kilogram for approximately 14 seconds with a peak power output of 19 watts per kilogram indicates that sprint characteristics may be somewhat similar between pro and under-23 races. They go on to say that further study is needed, but again, something like this would be really fascinating, and I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard to pull the information from riders that have won at different categories and figure out exactly what it takes to win a sprint leading up to it, so the 10 minutes leading up to the sprint in different categories, plus the actual output that you need to get across that line first. Now, Article 2 is another study called Neuromuscular Electoral Stimulation Does Not Enhance Recovery from Maximal Exercise. I've got to say, people that write headings for studies do not mess around. It is perfect because it is summing up exactly what it says. But the purpose of this study was to investigate the use of neuromuscular electrical stimulation, bit of a mouthful, during acute recovery between two bouts of maximal aerobic exercise. They got 19 male trained cyclists and they performed a three-minute maximal cycling bout at 105% of their VO2 max. And then they had a 30-minute randomly assigned recovery intervention, which was either one of three, passive, which is just resting, active recovery, which is 30% of the VO2 max, or neuromuscular electrical stimulation at 5 hertz, 4 pulses at 500 microseconds. Immediately after, a cycle bout of 95% of their VO2 max was done until exhaustion. And their heart rate and blood lactate were recorded at designated time points during this. This was also done on three separate days. So the results, the time to exhaustion was significantly shorter for neuromuscular electrical stimulation compared to the active recovery, but not passive resting recovery. So the time to exhaustion was not significantly different between active and passive. There is other parts here where the decline in the blood lactate was significantly greater during active compared to the neuromuscular electrical stimulation and passive recovery with no difference between neuromuscular stimulation and passive recovery. Interestingly, the heart rate was significantly higher during active recovery compared to the neuromuscular electrical stimulation and passive recovery with no difference between neuromuscular stimulation and passive recovery. So the conclusions that they draw from this are that neuromuscular electrical stimulation was less effective than active recovery and comparable to passive recovery when used between two bouts of maximal aerobic exercise in trained male cyclists. What's interesting here, the time to exhaustion average was around three and a half minutes. So they're not really getting into an aerobic zone over the, say, eight-minute mark. And this would mean to me that you kind of can't draw any conclusions for an aerobic activity, such as a long road ride, for example. So it really means that these results are going to be more specific for people that are backing up in short events. So something like the pursuit on the track is an event that is around this time, so it's going to be more useful for that type of event. But in that case, it definitely confirms the trackies just need to keep doing what they're doing, which I am assuming is active recovery in some way or another, because right now this test goes a long way in showing that the neuromuscular electrical stimulation products on the market are not effective for what they're saying they do. Ouch. 
Okay, the nuts and bolts this week, and this week we're talking about pain. Yes, pain again. But how to prepare for pain, how to stay in the pain cave longer, how to mentally get yourself there, and how you can practice putting yourself in that position, and over time, learning to react to pain in a better way so you ultimately have better performance results on the bike. This has a lot to do with mental fitness, but before I go ahead, I just want to confirm that this is a follow-up to episode 91, Increase Your Pain Threshold with Practice, where I talked about the possibility of being able to train the pain, and I see this as only one piece of what is needed to handle time in the pain cave, because Dealing with the mind is complex and it really does vary depending on each person. So my attempt with this episode is to give you some tools to raise your awareness and learn how to respond to pain and stress as well. And hopefully then it can give you ways to identify and change the outcome of what's possible in your pain cave. And yes, as my cheesy sign off does say, Hopefully, this will help you stay in the pain cave longer. I made a great reference in the last episode about an interview-based study that was conducted with pro cyclists and how they deal with pain. And the main highlights from this paper deal with how some of the pros believe pain is perceived differently and how the amount of pain is inversely proportional to the enjoyment of the experience. As quoted by one of the cyclists, when you are not going great, it sure hurts a lot more. When things are really clicking, it hurts a lot less. I'm sure this is something you have experienced yourself. Unfortunately, you can't always control how your form is during a ride. But control is definitely another theme that emerged in this paper. Tell me if you believe this statement or not. It's easy to deal it out rather than take it. When you're out on the bike, does being on the second wheel hurt you more than being in the front? I really have to argue that it can be both ways because sometimes the brainless activity of just following a wheel is the only way that you can stay in contact with some riders where other days you want to ride out the front, you want to get out there and you want to inflict pain on everybody that you're riding with. But from experience, I'd say that having confidence is the difference here and especially having confidence that you're fitter than everyone else in the peloton. But Whether you're turning the screws or they're being turned on you, the pain itself can only really last for so long, or you hope so. Because as the following quote tries to explain, pain is also relative to those around you. I'm going to keep pushing through this pain because I know the person up there isn't a robot. They can't keep going. Now, I don't hesitate to say that if the person up there is a couple of grades above you, then they are certainly a machine with no feelings and you will be in pain for a lot longer than you could probably handle. But if somebody's in the same race or they are at the same fitness level, then this thinking is much easier to associate with. Knowledge of how these pros react to pain can help you, but you have to remember that there's a lot going on here, and by the time these riders have actually got to where they are, it's not a matter of them simply convincing themselves that they're in control of a situation or that the riders around them aren't going to outlast the pain that they're actually dishing out to you. So we need to dig a little deeper before we can get to the cognitive strategies that can help you when you're in the pain cave. Firstly, though... Something that I take from this study, which is on a bigger level than kind of what we're talking about today, but I think the lesson is really important, and it's something that I try to do when I am investigating any topic that I kind of delve into. 
because I really believe that you can learn from those you aspire to be or those you want to understand why they do the things they do, how they do the things they do, whether it is a world champ or just your local hero. And you might not even have to talk to them directly to get the answers that you want. I have talked before about listening to their language, listening to what a writer has really been through to get where they are. You have to sort of understand why they're saying certain things and then how that relates directly to the situation and then how you can apply that to your own situation. And this way you can really get access to their thoughts and motivations and even their coping strategies in areas like we're talking about today. Listen to any world-class performer and ask them to recount maybe a past act that they did that's highly successful. They'll give you detail. You know, I was back there, my foot was in the wrong position, I moved it a little, I balanced off, I could feel the water behind me. Most people are going like, oh shit, I don't want to die here, you know. That's going to be... (laughs) That's going to be the majority of responses if I drag you out there and drop you in that situation, you know. If you pay attention to what they're saying and you listen a little bit more carefully to these people, it's all out there. you just got to look, get past the kind of wow factor a little bit and start to listen to this and it's all there for the taking. That's Andy Walsh, Red Bull's high performance director. He's talking about an athlete after the fact here, riding this insane wave on his surfboard. But... The lesson is definitely the same that we can definitely pick up from the language that is being used and apply this to ourselves. And the main thing that this athlete is talking about, which is actually going to help us with our topic today, is understanding the performance arousal curve and where you sit on the curve in relation to your best performance. Because to perform at your best, you really have to know what's going on when you compete. What is happening when you have competed at your best in the past? And what has happened when you've competed at your worst in the past? So there is a bit of science too. One of the first things we try and do with these guys is actually explain to them what's going on. So who's seen this before, this curve? Performance arousal, if you had any major, sorry, minor psychology training in your background, you would have seen this in 101. It's basically the flight or flight curve, if you like, you know. You've heard that system, you know, under a certain level of stress, the body responds either to the flight or flight mode as as it gets excessive. Well, the simple explanation is that for any given performance, for any given person, it's highly individualised, a certain level of excitement, arousal, pressure, if you like, whatever you want to call it, will improve your performance. Don't you agree? The boss says, get that done now. What do you do? He's, He's bumped the arousal up, you get it done. No matter who you are and what you do, at a certain point, if we push you past the middle of the curve, what starts to happen? freaking out, shakes, nervousness, heart of breath, you're not focusing on what you need to do. And it doesn't matter who you are. We could push anybody past that curve. So the goal for us is just to explain this first to the athletes so they're aware of what's going on, but for us to shift that curve up and to the right. But we want to make sure we push beyond the middle point, and why is that? So we know where it is. Most people play on the left side of that curve, it's comfortable, there's no risk, real risk involved. Feel, I'm risking, but they're not, you know. And people need to be pushed beyond, in our business, beyond that point, so we know what we've got. So we know where the failing point is. Obviously, for the performance on the day, we want to bring it back a notch, but training and practice and, and, and pressure and adding that value offer to the right is how you shift that curve up and to the right. To frame this up into a bigger picture... 
when you are trying to build a model of your best performance for your best mental performance under pressure and in pain, then we need to scan across the board. And again, Andy Walsh has some great ways of actually looking beyond cycling, beyond cyclists, beyond sports, and going wider still to kind of figure out who the best people in the world are that are actually dealing under mental stress, and in pain and trying to control situations that ultimately they really don't know what's going to happen and you don't automatically know the best way to respond to these. The ability to perform under pressure or perform as part of a team. Athletes are good at it per se, but military operators and tier one special forces are excellent at that. When the consequences of failure or death, you learn how to perform under pressure. So we draw and we create these ideas or these models, if you like, of world-class performance. And that's how we then frame up our training and strategy within that. So he talks about the armed forces. And if we talk about the high-level performance teams within the armed forces, the Navy SEALs are one of the teams that come to mind. They're firmly grounded in pop culture when you talk about the elite of the elite. And so understanding how they train people to deal with pressure and stress really is a key component into how we can get a better performance. Here's an example of a training drill that the Navy SEALs use. This exercise, known as the hooded box drill, is part of the close quarters defense system and is one of the ways the US Navy conditions its recruits to control these amygdala signals. Our students are deaf and blind. Our instructors will, uh, will set up a scenario and then the hood comes off and the student has to respond. Well, when you're under that hood, uh, you, have, you have just a moment to kind of gather your thoughts and, and think of scenarios that could come your way. Sometimes the correct response is swift and lethal. Sometimes it's nonviolent. It's supposed to simulate those quick snapshot situations, those high-risk situations that just happen in an instant. The interesting thing that I pick from this is that the trading covers all types of different scenarios. So while they're not necessarily in pain or they're not under physical pressure when they're doing these types of exercises. The different types of scenarios that they're presented with is something that's very similar to racing a bike because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how the different tactics are going to play out and you have to make these split second decisions. I've talked before about having a race plan and trying to embed that into your system but I think these are just the details on the surface. Actually having a system or a fundamental belief that you know how to deal with different types of situations is definitely the way to go. And I have been thinking about whether you can train this or not. The way that somebody picks this up naturally in cycling is just by racing a lot. They actually just spend a lot of time racing and picking it up. But it's not until a certain point where you're able to recall the detail in what happened that you probably aren't actually remembering things correctly and therefore probably can't act on them again. Or if you are worried about the fitness level and you can't keep up, then you're not going to be worried about the other 
things that are going on during a race. One way I've worked with an athlete to try and combat this is actually using a camera during races and then doing a race report afterwards that is accurately based on what happened and just talking through each step. And probably that's going to accelerate learning because it's going to be real in your brain. And just like a power meter, a camera doesn't lie about positioning and where you were and what you did. So this is the start of of really trying to train yourself on how to react under varying circumstances. But outside of races, I'm not exactly sure how you could train for this. I think you could do scenarios where if you had a bunch of riders and everybody but you knew what was going to happen, the other riders could throw these plans at you and then you just react accordingly and you're trying to swap off and beat them in a one-lap race or something. I think role plays like this could be very handy. It would take a lot to actually coordinate it, but I think trying to replicate race moves where you don't know the outcome is definitely what is happening here and what you're trying to train yourself to do. But I'm starting to get a little bit ahead of myself here because what we're trying to do here is really control our response under pressure because we want to make sure that we are reacting in the right way, in the correct way that's going to get the result that we want which is why part of the solution to dealing with pain is training your reactions to certain situations under pressure, which is all about using tools to take control of your mind and not just let it run away and take you to a shitty place. Yes, that's my technical term for mind meltdown. We have to get deeper still because there is something actually that we're missing from this whole equation and We have to get primal. We really have to break this down further. We've got to put it in context because there's really a hierarchy here which places your awareness in an important area. And the first thing when it comes to awareness really should be the awareness of your body and then your mind and then finally your situation because awareness of each one separately enables awareness of them all and how they work independently and together because if your body's under stress it's really hard to get past those feelings and sensations and this goes back to understanding your best state because what causes you not to be in your best state is going to be the key here finding your optimum is linked to your sympathetic system your fight or flight system and your parasympathetic system your rest or relax system So the foundation really is personal awareness of your body, then your mind, and then your situation. So if you want to train your brain in this area, one of the best ways to do this is to look at meditation principles and learning how to recognize what mode you're actually in. So the idea here is to learn meditation exercises of body awareness in the context away from the bike so that they can be used in different situations, not just on the bike. But it's not to say at some point you'll be linking and translating this into key moments on the bike where you're able to draw on this when it's needed. But outside of cycling, there are so many situations that this becomes really handy, even if it's a simple one like you work at a computer so you're quite stressed at some time and just spending five minutes actually training your awareness and figuring out what your body is doing and then what your mind is doing and then how you can react best to the situation. You can do this through something like calm.com. They have an app as well that you can do if you're not at a computer. But there's many options available for meditations as long as it's body awareness. And a simple five-minute body awareness meditation is really going to change the way that you're responding to any stimuli at that present time. For me, this is really best served as a habit-forming activity, which the way to form habits is by doing something 20 or 30 times before it really gets locked down as a habit. So 
If you want to commit to this seriously, then it's best done daily. This level of awareness is important because it uses body cues to the brain through breathing. And so we can train the brain to relax. And this becomes really important if you think about your state before the meditation and then you think about it afterwards. And definitely if you think this is a little too woo-woo for you, then I'd be interested in your response over time measured through something like heart rate variability that is meant to pick up on the sympathetic and the parasympathetic response that your body is actually happening over different periods during a day. So you could go and record this and actually tie a number to how you're feeling or where you are in the day, see if that actually increases the number, which is a good thing when it comes to HRV. And then you could see whether it's actually making a difference rather than just subjectively thinking, ah, I feel better or or whatever reasoning you're going to use at the time. It's really important, though, that after the meditation that you try and recognize what's changed and how it's changed. If you take an internal inventory of your emotions and your thoughts, you can see how different they are to before you started. And you may not even be aware how stressed you were or how much anxiety you were feeling before. A quick note here is that awareness doesn't instantly rid you of these emotions. So what awareness does is help you link these emotions between your body's behavior and how you're feeling, and then also allow you to take control and insert positive messages or mantras or songs or whatever it takes to move you into a better place if it's a bad spot that you're in. Some heuristics to take on board when you're on the bike is that no training or racing is suffer free. You have to allow yourself to feel pain because it will make you a better rider and trying to ignore it will just distract you from the task at hand and you will lose sharpness and focus. So if we go through the steps that we've taken so far, if we have thought about body awareness and then we've thought about mind awareness to what's actually happening, we then have to have tools to enable us in different situations to react differently under different situations. For example, say you're on a bike, if you just do a quick body check by either relaxing your shoulders and your jaw and then the hopefully from those two, the majority of your body will relax, then it allows you to focus on technique and being relaxed when on the bike, which is really important in conserving energy. And at the same time now, you can take a physical inventory of any pain that you're feeling and assess whether there is any bad pain, like injury in your body, or there is the pain that you expect to be dealing with at that point in the ride or race. So once you're at that point, That's when you start taking a mental inventory of any fear or anxiety, doubt, confidence issues, and this is where you start adjusting these expectations when necessary. The best way that I've found to think about it is, as I've mentioned before on an episode about confidence, is dealing with your chimp. And so if you get to the point where you do have something in there you don't want to deal with, that's the chimp. And by asking the simple question, do I want these thoughts, feelings, or behaviors? So do I want this anxiety? And if the answer is no, then that's how you get past it. Saying no doesn't necessarily get rid of it, but it removes your focus. And then your focus can then be on exactly what it needs to be on, what is in front of you. And once you're able to do this, you can move on to situational awareness, which again, this is where we turn to the armed forces, because Focus and concentration are paramount to situational awareness, and there is nothing like the threat of death to understand the training and teaching methods to build combat personnel to handle extreme situations. The Army is using advanced situational awareness training to teach soldiers how to use their minds to make more effective decisions on the battlefield. A large part of ASAT is profiling human behavior, which is broken down into six domains. 
These are heuristics, proxemics, atmospherics, biometrics, geographics, and kinesics. Heuristics involves using things you already know to draw a reasonable conclusion from something you are seeing. We go through the motions of playing baseball or playing golf, but you know we don't have any clubs or any bats or balls in our hands, and it's up to the students to draw a reasonable conclusion based off our actions. Proxemics talks about interpersonal relationships and allows a soldier to identify high-valued individuals or HVIs and high-valued targets or HVTs more quickly and effectively on the battlefield. We use an acronym called MADE, which is a mimicry, adoration, direction, and entourage, in order for our students to get the tool set in order to pick out HVIs and HVTs inside of a crowd. We tell these guys if all four of those don't fit, then that's not your HVI. Atmospherics refers to the environment and being able to read what things in your surroundings mean. We talk about the atmosphere you're moving into with a bullet holes, rubbling, trash, graffiti, all that means something. Biometrics means life measurement. This is anything your body puts out that you can't control but can be measured. We give them examples of their histamines and how histamines will pop up when you're angry, embarrassed, or you know you just get done working out. So as you're questioning someone, you start to notice that histamine count come up, and their face gets that histamine cross down the center. Geographics can be broken down into three areas. During ASAT, students learn what these are and how being able to recognize these will help them during combat. As we talk about natural lines of drifts, we talk about habitual areas, which, you know, in the street terms, it's a two-way street. Places that everyone can go freely and, and not really, you know, get a, a, a funky eye pointed at them, like a library or a church. Now, on the other side of that, you have anchor points, which are more one-way streets. Kinesics is paralanguage, also known as body language. During the kinesics portion of ASAT, students are taught to break down human behavior and evaluate common body language. We analyze just common body language that we all give off, but we really don't register inside of our mind. How a lot of males, when that uh, dominant pose comes up, when they're talking to someone that they kind of want to have that dominance over, how we'll put our hands on our hips to make ourselves bigger. These six domains are a crucial part of advanced situational awareness training. By teaching soldiers these human behavior reading skills, the Army is strengthening the individual and giving the squad a cohesive way to look at and analyze their surroundings. This could definitely be adapted and simplified to cycling training and racing, especially when you have the awareness that you are about to enter the pain cave and the extra confidence that it would give you, knowing that you've made the best possible move for the situation and you're able to remind yourself that pain is finite, you're in control, and you're able to dish it out when it counts. So everything that I've gone through here is definitely the path to enjoying pain in cycling and knowing how to use it to win. Because once you're confident in the situation that you're in, either through preparation or experience, you have a better chance of getting into the zone or into the flow state. And this is where we ultimately want to be. And this is ultimately where we will perform our best. Before I move on past this topic, though, I just had a bit of a brainwave. And tell me whether this is crazy or not. But going back to the Navy SEAL training, what if there was a database of all possible racing scenarios and then they were put into a tool like Anki that spat out these different scenarios back at you in an electronic card-based format and then you could practice certain responses to different actions and then this could help train you to know what to do when all these different things happen. Do you think this would help or is it just madness? I'm interested to hear whether you think this would actually help you accelerate your learning when it comes to race tactics and being able to handle situations when you are under stress and especially when the pain is starting to get to you. 
All right, the tech hacks and products section. And this week, it's a website, which I guess is a product called Pelofi. 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 I'll have to link to it because it's hard to say, but it's a website that helps you organize and find group rides. They describe it as a local community-driven social cycling network to discover, plan, and share rides where they're bringing social aspects of cycling together in a web and mobile app, allowing you to discover new rides, organize your group, and meet new riders. I do think there is a need for this. I think that a clean way of actually putting your rides out there, any rides that you do and people can jump on, especially if you're friends and you, they know you're going for a ride and they can catch you at any point or whatever, I think that there is a need for this. It's still in beta and they're accepting invites if you want to get a look in there. I'm in there and there is a few bugs kicking around, but you know, you've got to expect that in a beta. But I do believe it's a solid concept. The biggest issue here is probably that it needs critical mass to get going, or at least it needs all of your buddies to jump on board to make it worthwhile but hopefully you can get momentum and then you can find a decent bunch next time you're on the road and now that quote from the top of the show it's Moreno yes team canada rider Moreno Moza breaking out his uh, rock and roll we haven't seen him much this year. He's had problems with his knee, but he is down to ride Lege, Baston Lege, Tour de Romandy, and the Giro. So we may see him fire up in Italy this year. Let's see if he can start to deliver on his promise and his famous genes. And that's it for this week. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash mind to find any of the links used in this week's episode. From there, you can sign up for your free Wheelhouse Masterclass, Building the Base, a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Yeah.